I'm Trevor Cummings, and these are my Thoughts on Money. Hello, and welcome to the Thoughts on Money podcast. We like to call Tom. I'm Trevor Cummings, your host of the podcast and your author of the Thoughts on Money blog. I'm here with my good friend, Mr. Dea Pernas. Round of applause. Hello. Welcome to the podcast. Uh, we're going to talk about an article I wrote called Prudent Debt. And uh, we'll lean on the article a little bit, but I would encourage you to go read it because we're going to go off script and we're going to chat about some things here. Um, the whole reason I wrote this was when I have a new prospective client that comes to me and I'm reviewing their balance sheet, let's say there's somebody of your fine age, let's say that they're a 30 something and I see that they own their house outright. To me, again, I'm stereotyping here. I am then conscious. I'm like, oh, this person has a sensitivity to debt. Is it always true? No, but I will tell you from experience, most of the time, it's true. Own their house outright, you mean without a mortgage? Without a mortgage. Okay. So you find somebody, let's say, um, that just no mortgage, owns their house outright. To me, that a little bit of a flag goes off of like, okay, cool. This person might have a sensitivity towards debt. And I don't know how to describe it, but this topic has just interested me because I know that uh, debt can cause a lot of problems, right? But I also know that there's a way to use it prudently, which is why I called this article Prudent Debt, because I think for some people, putting those two words together feels like an oxymoron. I I completely agree. I think that there's a lot of... Uh, although I, I don't know too many people who own that their house out just, you know, they bought it all cash or something. Maybe maybe two... Maybe two of my friends and and my circle have done that. Uh, I don't hear that hear, hear that often, uh, but what I do hear very often is uh, sensitivity to debt, whether they be uh, you know whatever it is, taking out debt against their portfolio or uh, cash out refinance or uh, or they want to put down you know fifty percent of their mortgage payment or, or whatever or, uh, of the of the value of the house. Uh, we deal with that constantly. So uh, I I know what you mean, and I think it's something that is is very important to address. Uh, is debt bad, or is debt good, or can it be good or bad? Yeah, I think that's the question. Where I find myself stumbling now is sometimes uh, people ask me, well, should I pay off my house or should I not? And I kind of always go back to the same thing. I say, well, hey, if I grab my financial calculator, I might have an answer that's different than your preferences, and your preferences matter. So how do I balance this idea between, um, you know, what optimizes versus, you know, you might have a certain framing uh, that ha- that drives a different preference. And maybe for this article, I was trying to maybe pull people to say, hey, where does this framing come from? Because I think I'm with you, and m- maybe you can speak to it because uh, I don't want to speak on your behalf, but that uh, debt is neither good nor bad, but can be perversed. And uh, it has been many times. Yes, I agree. And as you wrote about in the article, I, I think the, the article is great. It's it's definitely worth reading. It's, and it's a topic that's really, really important, I think, uh, for people's uh, financial future. And if you're committed to the wealth build- building process, you really have to have the right philosophy uh, around the extension of credit or uh, debt or whatever you want to call it. And uh, as far as debt goes, and I think uh, Trevor and I are in agreement here, we're not we're not against debt. We're against leverage. We're against the non-productive uses of the extension of credit for either consumption or speculative purposes. But if you have the right strategy in place, debt can be a uh, the prudent prudent uh, debt taking uh, can be a wonderful way to uh, you know help maximize your wealth over time. I like how you articulated that, and because it was kind of quick, let's uh, let's 
peel back that for our listeners. So you said you, you identified two things where debt can get you in trouble. And you said consumption and speculation. Can you unpack each of those and, and, and maybe give an example of what you've seen and how somebody's used it in that manner? Absolutely. So consumption, uh, an idea, if you're thinking about taking uh, debt, essentially you're borrowing from yourself in the, in the future, if we we can all uh, agree is another way That's to think That's a really think good way to debt. frame it, to always say, hey, you're, you're borrowing from future self's income, right? Right, exactly. That That's exactly what you're doing. And if you're b- borrowing from your future self, you need to think about, okay, what am I going to do with that money? And if you're going to buy a car or you're going to throw an expensive party – uh, I would argue that's a horrific use of debt, and uh, and people may laugh and they would say oh, I would never do that, and and uh, you know maybe our, our our listeners wouldn't wouldn't ever do that, but but if you if you look at the if you consult consult the historical record, there have been times where uh, during um, either market bubbles or uh, yeah, two thousand eight is a good example that David likes to use where. Uh, you know, people's housing prices around 2007 or early, you know, 2008 uh, were were very, very high uh, relative uh, to what they had done normally. And, you know, people felt significantly wealthier and uh, they were uh, trying to, uh, you know, people are buying Hummers and people are taking ca- cash out of their house to throw parties, buy Hummers, uh, you know, do something for their kids' graduation, uh, whatever the deal is. And these are non-productive uses of debt. Uh, and if you're not, and if the if the money you're borrowing from yourself in the future you're using to consume and not create more wealth for you in the future, then that means you're essentially making yourself poor in the future to support uh, some uh, uh, some need to consume today, which uh, which uh, you know which which is not a a very good use of debt. Is the the second part that Trevor mentioned speculation? Uh, I'm going to pause you for okay, one second. Sure. So. Um, I think an interesting thing that you uh, touched on is I think some places that are consumption oriented, the marketing is, hey, you could just pay $100 a month. Right, exactly. And as Trevor alluded to, just because your monthly expenses after you've taken on a certain amount of debt are very, very low, uh, it doesn't mean that it's, a, you know, obviously a good idea uh for for you to engage in that in that uh, contract where that credit is extended to you, so uh, d- you know don't don't uh, don't be fooled by uh, very 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 small monthly uh, expenses. And that makes total sense. And I I think it's such a like I said a marketing ploy. This idea that hey wow we could definitely afford that, but then when you saw the whole price of the ticket item, you'd be like oh no I'm not going to spend that much. So uh, the framing about the commitment that you're making for future self is important. Tell me a little bit more about the speculation side. As far as the speculate speculation side goes, uh, and the spec I, I don't know what is worse the speculation side or the uh, or the consumption side. I would uh, I assume that they're they're uh, if you know it depends on the particular situation, but uh, and if you look at the history of financial markets, every time we have a bull market, there is generally uh, a lot of optimism in the air. There's generally uh, the cost of money is usually pretty low, and because there's this optimistic uh, kind of situation, you know people are. Uh, are trying to get credit, either to speculate, or to consume, or they're, they're buying whatever it is they're buying. There is there tends to be the unproductive extension of credit in bull markets, and when it comes to speculation, uh, namely that's using leverage to buy speculative assets. An example would be if uh, you were using uh, some uh, some margin on your portfolio to buy some 
uh, some crypto assets or something, uh, just to give everybody an example. You're knowingly taking on leverage to buy something that is very, very risky. So, you know, so you're essentially, uh, you're gambling with uh, money that's being lent to you. Uh, and the, the, the danger of that is, is when those speculative assets uh, inevitably, as, as uh, his history shows us, they always do, when certain speculative assets implode, then it causes, uh, you know, there's a direct link from those assets to, uh, to your portfolio assets, and you will need to sell uh, por- portfolio assets uh, in order to uh, in order to, to to pay off that leverage, which creates a a, a really bad uh, feedback loop and cycle. Uh, and you know the, this is how uh, you know bubbles reverse, and uh, you know there's a lot of uh, financial pain that is caused that sometimes is linked to the real economy and sometimes may stay in financial markets. But uh, but that's this speculative part of uh, of using debt. And it's interesting. It's like asking the question, what's worse, greed or gluttony, right? right. <laughs> so uh, it's hard to decipher both and uh, none, are, none are positive. And those are ways that debt can be perversed. And that's why I really want to go out of my way in the article to, to try to make this palatable or understandable. And I started comparing it to fire, right? Uh, there's a lot of good uses for fire, right? You can uh, make a fireplace, you could bake something tasty and all those things. But we also know that fire can burn people. Uh, fire can burn houses down. Uh, it can be fatal. So uh, we know that you have to use it within kind of a, a controlled environment. A- and history shows us uh, whether it was, you know, uh, Archegos last year uh, with Bill Huang, or um, whether it was long-term capital management, that even when somebody thinks they're using uh debt in a, in, a, in a prudent manner, um, that speculative side can really break you um, and cause uh, collateral damage, as we saw for Archegos for some of these banks, and we saw for long-term capital management, a hedge fund actually had to get bailed out. Mm. Yeah, abs- uh, absolutely. And it happens time and time again. And I, I'll go back to the financial crisis again. Uh, one of uh, in the, the causes of the financial crisis uh, are multi-factor in nature, but one of the main causes was the amount of leverage that was put on to essentially these mortgage-backed securities uh, all around the globe by every financial institution because they assumed that this was an asset that had very low levels of risk and it was the wrong assumption. And and because of the – and if there wasn't all this leverage linked to mortgage-backed securities, we nothing might have happened. But given that uh, you know some of these – assets are being leveraged at 50 to 1 or some astronomical number, uh, you can get a very, very uh, vicious, uh, you know, second and third order outcomes uh, that are that are linked to uh, the economy. And you start to get in this interconnected uh, kind of mess when uh, financial st- institutions start to uh, be in trouble. So it's not just uh, individuals that are guilty of this as well. It's uh, financial institutions, as Trevor mentioned, and it, it's a time immemorial. It's going to happen again and again. And in this sense, uh, time really is a circle. And we have to use sometimes uh, these unique measuring tools to kind of see, hey, what is the general um, feeling of, of investors out there. We watch um, home equity levels, right? We watch um, applications for home equity lines of credit and different things like that because 
I know when you hear the word leverage or something 50 to 1 or something like that, some people's brains kind of turn off. That's why uh, in that movie, um, The Big Short, they had to use, I think they used Selena Gomez and maybe Dick Thaler, was it, uh, in in a casino to kind of express what derivatives are and showing that it's not only what's happening on the gambling table, but other people with side bets on top of that and side bets on top of side bets. And this idea of uh, how much of an impact that can create. Um, and we even saw it, I think it was maybe the year before last, um, there was a, a volatility fund that kind of kind of broke. Mm. And the reason being is when volatility got so uh, uh, tranquil and, and modest uh, that the movements became more expressive from coming from a lower number. I'm not explaining that perfectly, but I'm just saying uh, is when things look all good and dandy, uh, you don't always understand all the gamblers at the table and that have uh, uh, bets and commitments that everything will continue to be good and dandy. Uh, yeah, and I think that's exactly a takeaway because generally speaking, uh, you start to hear narratives, and I think that, it, and like, like you said, uh, you know, a couple years ago around that vol that vol fund that blew up a lot. A lot of people who were trading volatility uh, got destroyed, and uh, 2017 is the lowest, uh, essentially lowest uh, S and P year on record. And there started to be a lot of theories that came out why volatility is going to be structurally low going forward. The new normal. The new normal. You start getting all these narratives. Very similar to 2007, 2008. I believe there was a book published right before the housing collapse that uh, the title of the book that said something along the lines of, from a very reputable author uh, that was along the lines of why housing prices will never go down. So uh, you start to get these narratives that, that, that try to support this kind of new environment as a, a as a uh, you know like a structural or, or thematic uh, or sec- kind of secular idea when when really it's you know it, it tends to be cyclical like most other things. Yeah, and and we've spoken now uh, you know the first ten minutes or whatever to kind of uh, how you can get burned by leverage. But uh, that is kind of the consensus view with a lot of the folks I meet with. So how we pivot and, and I think help people to reframe, at least for me, um, and this isn't a common word we use, but this idea of exposure was huge for me um, to say that when an expense or a commitment comes up, um, if you take $1 out of here and place it there, you're losing a dollar of exposure. Uh, and, and the point I'm trying to make there, and, and I, I, maybe I can make, make it simple and use a, a balance sheet. We talked about it in the article. Um, let's say I have a million dollars in stock and I have no debt and I'm going to go out and buy a house for $500,000. Uh, in this really simple hypothetical, let's just assume I could borrow a full 500000 Well, um, if I paid cash for the house... What would I have to do? I'd have to sell from my million dollars of stock. I'd sell five hundred thousand, and then I'd go buy the cash uh, for the house. And then what would my balance sheet look like? I'd have a five hundred thousand dollars of stock. I'd have a five hundred thousand dollars home, and I'd have zero liabilities on the right side of my balance sheet. Well, what's another way that that could be done? Just to show the other side of the spectrum. Well, I, I could borrow for the purchase of that home. Um, and what would happen? I'd have a million dollars of stock. I'd have a $500,000 home. And then I would have a $500,000 liability, a mortgage. In both of those scenarios, the net worth did not change, right? Uh, both of those ended in the same result, a million dollar net worth. Um, the difference is the exposure. Um, when the debt was taken on, you retained those exposure to stocks. And that is not nothing, that is something. Um, and that's where I think if you understand 
how to retain those exposures and manage your debt prudently, it can make dramatic differences. Does that make sense the way I'm saying it? Or Yes, absolutely. Uh, dramatic differences to uh, the future wealth. Uh, yes. I mean, uh, if, if you look at uh, – and just to use that quote, you said uh, that Charlie Munger quote where, yeah, compounding uh, interest or compounding returns are the eighth wonder of the world, uh, but – but don't unnecessarily interrupt them or something like yeah, that. Yeah, the first rule uh, I, I of compounding I'm, is to never interrupt it unnecessarily. Right, right, exactly. So, uh, and that's a way you, anytime you're going to sell uh, to make a purchase something, you're interrupting the compounding miracle that's happening in your portfolio. So, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's interesting. And I, and I wonder what, how you kind of talk to clients to get them to understand this type of thing. And to be honest, I'm always, uh, I'm always a bit sensitive to how, and maybe, and sometimes it's cu- it's cultural where the taking on of debt is viewed as a you know almost a sin or uh, or something to be uh, you know thoroughly avoided. Yeah, I read this book, and I don't know if this is true. Mm-hmm. I'm just giving the quote from the book. Um, he said he traveled to Turkey and he had seen all these houses that were kind of like half built or two thirds built or or kind of just starting. And he asked, "Hey, why is that?" It's because they build as much as they could for, for wherever he was. And then they go out, make more money, and then continue to build. And it was a culture where uh, they weren't borrowing from future self to get a completed home today. And to me, that was a paradigm shifter of like, oh, this is a cultural thing because although we could have some hesitancy towards uh, the word debt and have some connotations or negative, uh, most of us will uh, take on debt for the purchase of a home. Sure. Yeah. Wow. I, I, that's, a, that's an excellent example. Of I don't know if it's true. I, I literally okay. <laughs> met it, read it in a book, so I'll blame the, the, the author, but, um, but yeah, I'll but, have to research it. But, but, I, I, but it's something that we've all observed with uh, you know, different cultures, different people, where there's just this gut reaction to it that's just not going not gonna to go away. And even if you logically explain to them, like, look, if you take on this debt at, at, at this cost of borrowing, let's say it's a percent, two, three, or four, and we put it in these other assets that are generating a lot more, uh, you're using your debt for productive purposes and your your uh, your wealth is growing over time. Uh, and you're not having to sell anything, like you said. You're, 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 you're keeping that compounding going. Even after you explain that to them as 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 clear as crystal, they still have that resistance to it. And if that if that scenario that I'm describing were to happen to you in uh, in talks with a prospect or a client, would you just leave it alone, or would you keep trying to educate to get them to make the logical decision? Yeah, I'm sensitive to it. So even when you say logical decision, um, it's hard for me because, like I said, some things. So here's here's an example, mm. um, and let me know uh, what, what your thoughts are. Um, I've read a white paper recently, uh, and it's credible, and the research is good. That basically says, like, really, the best performing um, or the best way to get exposure to stocks or whatever. Again, you'll, you'd have to go back and read the white paper. It's not a recommendation or anything like that. But it, it talked about um, looking at uh, leverage levels and looking at like 120 uh, percent of stock exposure um, actually. W- w- never blew up completely and created greater returns, right? So that in, in the scenario of this white paper is logical, right? Does that mean we should go out, all go out and do it? Um, that means it's optimal, right? But should we all go out and do it? Uh, we probably won't. Mm. Is, it, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, yes, I'm not saying I, it perfectly, but you get I, what I mean? Right, I, I agree with what you're saying. Well, it's like, oh, well, you could have followed this strategy and uh, it it's grounded in a certain investment principles, uh, and you, uh, you know, obviously, uh, you would increase your wealth over time. And if you pursue the strategy now, it, it, it's likely to have uh, the same outcome. Uh, 
And I think that, that you know, we, I, I guess what I'm saying is, in that sense, you're somebody who takes on debt who just doesn't want to take on more. I'm ta- I'm ta- I guess my, my question is more somebody who just doesn't want to take on any at all. Yeah, I, what I will do for, for that person, because you're asking, will I push? I probably won't too much, mm. but I'll, I'll probably go back to that same place of saying, hey, let's put both things on the table. Let's look at the financial plan, do some scenario planning, use the numbers, do projections, and kind of talk through that. And let's you know set aside all our biases. Um, but then also, after we do that, let's also respect and elevate your preferences. Um, and we do a balance between those two. And here's the reality. Most of the folks that I talk to, it's not a make or break anyway. Mm. Um, it, it's more about, hey, what makes, I, I don't know, as a financial planner, what, what seems like it would probably be the preferred route to go? And it's the same to say, what if somebody had so much money um, and their expenses were so light yes. that they could just keep it all in cash? Um, is that a bad decision? That's a good question. Um, I mean, at the end of the day, what what is a portfolio? It's uh, it's something supposed to be linked to some goals and help you reach your goals. And you know, and if your uh, you know, if your I guess your pool of cash that is you know, as we know, whose purchasing power is deteriorating as we speak, yeah. is still far and above the amount that can help you reach your goals. Then it's I mean, it's hard for me to say anything too negative at the end of the day. Uh, but except really in that case, what I would do is really trying to uh, even with more clarity, define what their actual goals are, maybe to get them to look further, uh, you know, at next level type goals. Um, See, that, that's a place that Sean Latimer and I probably disagree a little bit. Maybe yeah. not. I, I've just heard him speak to it is he kind of sometimes will take the approach of like, Hey, if you've won the race, then why take on more risk than needed? Where, which I, I don't I don't disagree with that statement wholly, but where I'm probably a little bit different for that person that we're saying is going to hold complete cash. The challenge I'd give to them is I would say this idea of stewardship, like you've been placed this responsibility of this. So I do think you have a responsibility to uh, to grow this wealth and use it wisely. That's a much uh, that's a much better way of putting it than what I just said. I, I completely agree with that statement. At the end of the day, I uh, you you can do a lot of things for society with this wealth, even though you may not need uh, this level of wealth for you and your family and their, their, and their heirs or whatever the deal is. And it's, uh, it's, you know, with a lot of wealth, I do think comes responsibility. And uh, it's important to at least think about, uh, you know, a very wide range of goals uh, before saying, I just want to be in cash forever. Yeah. Here's an, uh, another question for you um, as we get close to the end of the podcast. Um, the way that I see this with this idea of exposure, so I've started to see debt almost as like a moat to basically like that Charlie Munger quote to, to really protect this compounding. Like you've set aside X amount of money in these assets that uh, are uh, intended to grow, right? Um, the idea is that if I go out and I have a home equity line of credit that I never tap and a portfolio line of credit that I never tap, and um, you know sufficient uh, amounts in uh, high-quality bonds and cash, it, it creates these moats, or what I often call safety nets, to really preserve that from ever being touched. Does that part make sense? I have a second part to it. Just as far as like uh, alternative sources of liquidity? Yes. Cause so, I, so I look at it, that's a good way to put it. Like almost an insurance company, there's this idea of asset and liability matching, right? Mm. So I think, okay, what are your expenses? 
Um, what are uh, future expenses that you've earmarked, whether it's a new home or house or, or um, a car or whatever that are significant or one-off? Once you do that asset liability matching and you have the liquidity, I, I almost like to really maximize the amount that we can put in that bucket to compound and never touch. So the, what I explain to people sometimes is that uh, one way to look at uh, a debt is a way of creating another safety net. So let's say you had an open portfolio line of credit that had zero balance on it. Um, but the capacity of that line of credit is available for you if an, a, an extraordinary, unlikely event or expense came up that you then could resource that rather than have to sell a security. You can still sell a security. It's just this idea of optionality. Yes, absolutely. I, 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 so it's almost like the potential uh, incurring of debt. Is something that that can create that uh, another uh, sort of safety net, if you will. Yeah, because I, I think you could always play that what if game of like, what if this happens? What if this happens? Sure. And I think it's fair because there's been some what ifs that have been sure. uh, crazy. Um, but I just really love this idea of there's some bucket that is intended for growth and compounding. And I really want to put as much in there and not touch it. Um, while having enough things outside of that bucket that allow me for all worst case scenarios. So where I see um, a line of credit can be beneficial um, is to give you another backstop. And even if there's no balance, it technically is a form of leverage, right? Because mm. maybe in the past that backstop has been cash, but you're, you're, you're basically using that as a surrogate. Absolutely. I completely agree. And it gives you more flexibility in case uh, any of those uh, aforementioned events do rise. And I think it adds to a, a, so a comfort and a peace of mind knowing that you can get liquidity in a second anytime you need it. So I, I couldn't agree more. Yeah. And I think it's an interesting thing because obviously all the rules could change, right? Banks uh, could say, hey, we're going to change the rules on your home equity and things like that. And you have to be conscious about how those things could happen. But um, that idea, going back to that Charlie Munger quote, first rule of compounding, never interrupt it unnecessarily. I would say two rules, don't interrupt it, and then try to get as much as you can compounding, right? So it kind of changes the dynamic of classic asset allocation, right? Because I think, like I said, insurance companies do this asset and liability matching really good. Um, But for some reason in the investment world, from a retail side, you know, what what you and I interact with, it's it's just so much in the the vernacular of like, oh, I'm going to be a 60-40 or 50-50 or uh, without any thought towards what is the liability that you're trying to match to. Does that make sense? It's more trying to match to somebody's tolerance, which feels un- undefinable, than it is to something that's like concrete. Yes, uh, yes. And that's part of uh, our, our challenge is to uh, have their portfolio or the client's portfolio make it uh, something that's more understandable. It's more linked to real life and outcomes and expenses uh, as opposed to, like you said, some ethereal uh, risk thing that, that, you know, says, oh, you need to be 5545. <laughs> so, yeah. But the weird thing is, why Why do you think, and this is maybe I'll, I'll kind of wrap up towards this, but why do you think that has been such a reality for the retail side, but businesses or corporate finance or insurance companies, like I said, asset liability matching, they've never framed it that way. Why, 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 why is the, the paradigm so different? That's a good, that's a good point. That's a good question. Uh, I assume it has to do with, uh, time horizons and, uh, and just risk, risk tolerance in general, where, uh, you know, institution, uh, is not generally speaking is not one where, 
they care about volatility or what they really care about is just meeting their liabilities. Uh, where, uh, you know, as far as an, on an individual level, even if their liabilities are being met, maybe they do care if their portfolio goes up and down uh, 2% a day or, you know, it, it adds that discomfort where things are more dispassionate uh, at the institutional level. Are emotions diluted when you have more people in the room? Like the fact that an institution might have a board and checks mm. and balances and things, you know, a little bit more bureaucratic or whatever you want to say, um, does that dilute emotions? Like if it's an individual, those emotions are flaring and strong and, sure. and there's a one vote uh, decision maker. Could that be maybe the difference in, in how we're defining tolerance? Uh, I, I think that that definitely has something to do with it. I, I would say that it's also primarily just uh, – that the, the as far as the ownership, you know, the full responsibility of your wealth is yours and yours yeah. alone. <laughs> Where a company could disappear right. and uh, things go on as normal. Right. There's that. There's that. Those degrees of separation. Uh, so, yeah. But I, I think it's interesting uh, to think about. Yeah, we'll wrap up there. But again, the reason I wrote this article is because uh, I think money is saved for something. And I think that your expenses are really important. So understanding those expenses and then framing the design of your balance sheet, framing the design of your portfolio around that. And really, I don't want to use the word optimize or maximize or whatever, but like trying to get as much as you can into that compounding bucket. Because the reason Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger are such a belief believer in that is that they are, uh, you know, in their late 80s or 90s, and they've seen the fruit of it. And they understand something uninterrupted compounding for a long time is what makes like um, generational wealth. And uh, in, 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 the funny thing is volatility is very hard to experience in the short run. But in hindsight, when you see the benefits that you've derived from it, your paradigm is totally different. Absolutely. I, I, that long-term horizon, I think, is absolutely essential. Yeah. And we all plan to live a long and beautiful life. That's so, right. Um, we wish that upon all of our listeners. We will ask that you rate the podcast. Uh, all comments are welcome. You can email tom at thebonsagroup.com. That's really easy. T-O-M at thebonsagroup.com. Any questions, comments, um, uh, things that you'd like to, us to discuss in the future, uh, we welcome that. And uh, with that said, we will be back next week with more of our Thoughts, Thoughts on, on Money. Bonson Group is registered with Hightower Securities, LLC, member FINRA and SIPC, and with Hightower Advisors, LLC, a registered investment advisor with the SEC. Securities are offered through Hightower Securities, LLC. Advisory services are offered through Hightower Advisors, LLC. This is not an offer to buy or sell securities. No investment process is free of risk, and there is no guarantee that the investment process or the investment opportunities referenced herein will be profitable. Past performance is not indicative of current or future performance and is not a guarantee. The investment opportunities referenced herein may not be suitable for all investors. All data and information referenced herein are from sources believed to be reliable. Any opinions, news, research, analysis, prices, or other information contained in this research is provided as general market commentary. It does not constitute investment advice. The team and Hightower shall not in any way be liable for claims and make no expressed or implied representations or warranties as to the accuracy or completeness of the data and other information, or for statements or errors contained in or omissions from the obtained data and information referenced herein. The data and information are provided as of the date referenced. Such data and information are subject to change without notice. 
This podcast was created for informational purposes only. The opinions expressed are solely those of the team and do not represent those of Hightower Advisors, LLC, or any of its affiliates. Hightower Advisors do not provide tax or legal advice. This material was not intended or written to be used or presented to any entity as tax advice or tax information. Tax laws vary based on the client's individual circumstances and can change at any time without notice. Clients are urged to consult their tax or legal advisor before establishing a retirement plan.